Good morning. The title for the message today is When Doubt, When Doubt Makes Faith Difficult. When Doubt Makes Faith Difficult. Anybody here ever have doubts? Raise your hand. Me too. All of us. Yeah. Hey, before I begin, though, I want to say uh, just uh, thank you for all the encouragement and support I had last week. Uh, it was awesome. It was just a great place to be in Boston last week. Uh, really difficult weather. But I met people from all over the world. It was an unbelievable experience. It is a little bit intimidating when you get on the train in the morning to ride to the place where the marathon begins and you sit next to the medic and he tells you people will die today. Uh, <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. The other thing I want to mention to you is next week is going to be, um, going to be a, a great Sunday for us. Really, we're blessed. I've invited uh, David Pageant, former UofL basketball coach, who attends this church with his family. He's going to speak next week on when adversity makes faith difficult in the service. Uh, David's been very gracious to speak. I believe it's the first time he's spoken uh, since he is no longer the coach. And uh, he said, feel free to let people know so people will come. I know people are going to want to hear what he has to say. He's a wonderful, wonderful man, and uh, you're going to be inspired by his story next week. You're going to be here for that? You're going to invite some friends? Yeah. You better get early. You may not have a seat. So, so let's open the Bibles now, our Bible for the Word of God. Uh, John chapter 20, verse uh, 24 through 29. Now Thomas... One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the reading of the Word of God, and God's people did say, Amen. Amen. You ready for a good word this morning? Maybe somebody will come and bring you one. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we've been waiting for 15 years now for a good word. Yeah. <laughs> Someday I'll retire and it'll all be okay. I had a really uh, long conversation uh, on the airplane home from Boston. Uh, with a woman who sat next to me. And whenever I meet someone anywhere in public that I don't know who's a stranger to me, I never, ever introduce myself and then immediately tell them I'm a minister. It's not that I'm embarrassed about being a minister. It's not that I'm ashamed of being a minister. It's just that whenever I say I'm a minister, it automatically changes the conversation. They immediately stereotype me, and they are not honest with me about what they think. They change the way they talk with me. So because I didn't tell this woman what I did for a living, 
we had a very thoughtful conversation. She was very open with me about her opinions, her viewpoints, and we talked about the world and all kinds of things. At the end of our ride on the plane, I then, she then looked at me and she said, what do you do for a living? Now, she was, uh, worked for the federal government. She was in Boston for the marathon because she was there to monitor uh, the safety of the runners and those sorts of things. She told me right up front. So I then said, I'm a minister. And she was stunned. <laughs> she, she looked at me. She said, well, you're fairly normal. <laughs> and, and then she said, she said, I'm, I'm just, I'm surprised. She said, I grew up uh, in an atheist home, and I had no religious training, and it's not a part of my life. I don't see it as a need in my life at all. And you care about a lot of things I care about. And she said, you're very open-minded, and you're not judgmental, and, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just surprised. It was wonderful because she, I could tell she was generally stunned. And then she got really curious about our church. We talked about our church a little bit. And then she said, could I have your business card? I'd like to know more about what you do. You see, I'm convinced that most people who reject Christianity don't have a problem with Jesus. Most people who reject Christianity have a problem with the extras that we have stacked on top of Jesus. Extras like our politics, like our rules, like our lifestyles, like our beliefs, like our dogma, and our teaching. All those things they reject and walk away from Jesus because we have just piled them on top of him so they can't see who the real Jesus is. And what I've discovered when I talk to people is that most of the people I meet don't even reject the idea of God. They don't ask me or debate the idea with me, well, where is God in the world with all the suffering going on in the world? How can there be a God when there's starvation and hunger in the world? That's not what they want to talk about. What they want to argue with me about is the church and about Christians. Because Christians sometimes are ugly in the way they treat other people. And they want to talk about why is it that Christians don't do more to alleviate human suffering? Why is it that Christians are so judgmental and mean-spirited and so close-minded? And that makes me so sad because Jesus is beautiful. And he's beautiful, but he's been made ugly by the church because sometimes the church and Christians and religious people disfigure him by the way that we show up in the world. And sometimes the, the ugliest Christians are the ones who seem to have the largest megaphone. They're the ones that get all the attention. And it makes me sad, so sad, because I see so many beautiful things being done in the world by those who follow Jesus. On the Sunday before the marathon, uh, Old South Church historic church that was started in the 1600s where Benjamin Franklin was baptized, uh, where the guy who makes beer, Sam Adams, actually belonged. 
And this is the church here. It's a beautiful church. And it is on Boylston Street, and it is at the finish line for the Boston Marathon. It was ground zero for the bombing five years ago. And they have made a habit since the bombing of opening up their church on the Sunday before the marathon for the blessing of the runners. And it's amazing. I've been twice now. And music and prayers and, and a thousand runners show up. And I don't know what it is about bagpipes. But every time they play, it just makes me cry. I don't even really like them. <laughs> but bagpipes and amazing. Before the service started, uh, I was standing in the foyer and I was talking to a young man passing out programs. And I said, I just want to thank you. You have such a beautiful church. I love your church. Thank you for opening your church. And thank you for the way you're blessing our runners. And, and just, we, we just, you have a great church. You know what he said? He said, well, this is not my church. And then he said, this is not our church. This church is for everybody. And then on the way out of the service, I picked up a little card, a um, little promotional card for Old South Church. And I want to read to you what the card says. It says, skeptic, certain, confident, fearful, gay, bisexual, married, divorced, single. I like this one, looking. <laughs> Male, female, saint, sinner, a little bit of both, immigrant, native, strong, weak, got it together, lifelong screw-up, long-time member, just walked in the door, parent, child, housed, homeless, believer, questioner, questioning believer, doubter, sports junkie, tree hugger, geek, cool kid, loner, rich, poor, just barely making it. And then it says, Jesus didn't turn people away. Neither do we. Wow. Yeah. So, and then it says, a church of radical welcome since 1669. So, so I, wanted to, I wanted to tell the woman on the plane, hey, there are a lot of beautiful examples of people who are serving Jesus around the world. And then I told her about our church. I want to tell you, you're beautiful. Your actions speak louder than words. When I got home and found out this week that more, almost 500 of you had served from packing 20,000 meals for the hungry around the world. When I found out that you had gone on Saturday in the rain and built a playground. When I found that you had gone down on Wednesday and served the meals to the homeless at the Louisville Rescue Mission. That some of you prepared breakfast for the homeless after worship on Sunday. That's just absolutely beautiful. You see, there's so much of that beauty being lived out every day. We've got to do a better job of talking about it and showing and living it. Because I think the church would be a lot more attractive to the world if it looked more like Jesus and less like a political party. I think that the church would be a lot more attractive if we were more welcoming and kind than we were concerned about being right and pushing our answers on people without asking them what their questions are. You see, I think the church would be so much more attractive if it was a safe place for people to ask their questions and where they could express their doubts without being punished for their honesty. You see, a lot of people, what they think is, go to church, uh, close your mouth, close your mind, because the church is a place where when you become a Christian, it means becoming closed-minded, you don't ask questions, all your doubts are resolved, and and you become more exclusive and more judgmental and less kind. 
You see, my point this morning that I want to make is, is that doubt is not the problem. Doubt and questions do not interfere with our faith. Doubt and questions do not make our faith more difficult. What makes our faith more difficult is when Christians use doubt to shame people. When the church punishes people for asking questions that God put in our minds. If you have doubts, you have questions, it's because that's the way God made you and wired you. It's the way you were created. God gave you a mind. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. You see, what damages faith and makes faith difficult is we are taught to suppress our questions and our doubts. I heard a minister tell the parents in his congregation, and I'm not exaggerating, that they should refuse to pay tuition, the tuition for their future college students if they went to a state university or a public university or a liberal private college. The reason being, he said, if you send your kids out of our church with our beliefs and you don't send them to a Christian college, they may lose their faith. You know what I think? I didn't get a, he, he didn't ask me, but if he would have, I said that if our faith cannot handle questions, if our faith cannot be exposed to different ideas, if we can't rub up against people who believe different things, if we can't be friends with people who belong to different religions, then maybe our faith isn't worth keeping. And maybe our God is just way too small. David Wolpe, you've probably never heard of him. I became acquainted with him on NPR. David Wolpe is one of the most prominent rabbis in America today. Uh, David Wolpe has written a wonderful book called uh, Why Faith Matters. I love this book. In this book, he says that his father was a rabbi. And when he was a teenager, he began to rebel against the teaching of his father in his synagogue. He went up to his dad one day and he said, Dad, uh, I no longer believe in God. He thought he was going to shock his father. So his dad goes into a study and pulls a book off the shelf and says, well, here's a great book on atheism. Why don't you go read it? He wasn't freaked out. He wasn't bothered. He didn't squirm. He didn't question. He didn't berate him. He said, and while you're reading this particular author, here's another great author who's an atheist, and he outlines his readings. Go read all you want. So he goes off to college. He explores his atheism. He asks his questions, expresses doubts, and guess what happens? He finds God in the questions. And he becomes a great rabbi. And you know what's amazing about the story? Is because he was free to ask his questions, he's now considered to be one of the top 50 rabbis in the world, voted on by the Jerusalem Post. And one of the, voted one of the, the most influential rabbi in America today. And I believe in my heart because he asked those questions and he had the freedom to ask the questions. He is touching people all over the world, skeptics and doubters, and bringing people to God because he himself understands it's okay to ask questions. You see, you see, you see when you read the Gospel of John, we get the story wrong. What do we call that story? The story of Doubting Thomas. You remember the story? 
Thomas is not with the disciples when Jesus shows up after the resurrection. He went to buy lunch. He went to Subway to get a sandwich. He missed Jesus. Comes back and he says, hey, I'm not going to believe. I can't believe this. It's too good to be true. Unless I see his nail prints and his hands and the wounds and his sides, I'm just not going to believe it. Now, notice in the story, the disciples don't scold him. And then what happens? Jesus shows up. And Jesus didn't go, Thomas, we're going to call you from now on Doubting Thomas. Jesus never calls him Doubting Thomas. Who does that? Christians who are Pharisees and who are good at shaming. We get the story wrong. Jesus did not scold him, did not condemn him. In fact, in the midst of his questions, guess what? Jesus shows up. He asks his questions, and he says, Hey, look, probe me, ask your questions. Put your hand in my side, put your hand in my wounds. Look at me. He does say, stop doubting and believe, but what he's saying is, Hey, look, I'm here, ask your questions. Let's talk about your doubt, and let's believe. And then as a result, what happens? His disciples and no one else in the Gospel of John makes this confession until this moment. After he asks his questions, after he expresses his doubts, Thomas then says, My Lord and my God. We just get the story wrong. You see, we point out and we say that this story is, Thomas is a bad example. But I want to tell you this morning from my point of view that Thomas is a good example. Look, I'm going to tell you the truth this morning. If you're looking for a preacher that doesn't have doubts, you probably need to find another church. <laughs> sort of. But I grew up in the church. I was raised in a Christian family. I've read the Bible from cover to cover multiple times. I was ordained. I've been a minister for 30 years. I was a religion major in my undergraduate school. I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School and got a degree in theological education. And I have doubts. But I also have faith. I have both. I have both faith and I have doubts. I'm a mixture of all those things. And you, the truth is we have good reason to have doubts. If you live long enough, at some point, your experience is not going to match up with what you've been taught to believe. Hey, if you read the Bible, you're going to have doubts. Have you read the Old Testament? I'm not saying it's not true. I'm, not, I'm just saying, have you read it? People will say to me, David, when I, when I raise a question, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. And my response is, well, have you read it? There's lots of reasons to have doubts. You grow up in a church and you're taught that the earth is only 5,000 years old and that the theory of evolution is a theory of atheism and, then you, and it's just black or white. There's no middle ground. Not to mention that the Old Testament story of creation is poetry. It's not science. It's, not a, it's faith. Then you go off to university and you're taught something different. What are you supposed to believe? It creates doubts. And then you look at the church you know, today Christians are really good about bashing Muslims for uh, terrorism. Well, some of the first terrorists on the earth were Christians. You ever heard of the Crusades? Constantine became the Holy Roman Emperor, becomes a Christian, and then they executed people that didn't believe the right things. 
You look at the record of the church, and there's all kinds of questions that we can have. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm trying to say, hey, it's a normal thing. Frederick Beekner is a great author, no longer living, and he said this. He said that doubt is the ants in the pants that keeps faith awake and growing. I like that. I think it's true. And here's the thing. We need doubts. We need questions. Otherwise, we keep believing stuff that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. If people were not doubters, if people didn't ask questions, Christians would still be walking around the world saying the earth is flat. Thank God for the Christian scientist who pushed the edge. Do you know what the church does to its heretics? The heretics like Galileo and Copernicus, people that wanted to translate the Bible into common English language. You know what they did to heretics? They burned them at the stake. Now do you know what we call them today? Saints and reformers. My question is, who are the heretics today that are asking the important questions and raising the important questions that someday our kids are going to call reformers and saints? Here's what I would say if someone comes up to you and says, hey, have you read this argument against Christianity and the faith by this new author that's writing it? So I don't have to read it. Why? Well, because all those arguments have already been made. Well, where? Well, in the Bible. Read the Bible. In the Bible, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Psalms and Ecclesiastes and the book of Job and Lamentations and some of the prophets all make these same questions. Ask somebody to read Psalm 73. If you think doubting is bad, read Psalm 73. Psalm 73 goes like this. Hey, God, I'm looking at, now this is my translation. Hey, God, I'm looking around at what's happening in the world. And you know what? It just doesn't seem quite fair. You say you're going to bless good people with good things. But I'm seeing a lot of bad people getting pretty rich and pretty fat and pretty lazy. And they never suffer. And here I am. I'm a good person. I've been good all my life. And I'm not rich. I'm, not ha- I'm, I'm just really struggling. And apparently... This whole system is set up wrong, and so I've been a good person for no reason. That's Psalm 73. That's it. Did you know that was in the Bible? And what happens is he ends up, he ends up telling God these things, and then his perspective changes. He gets a bigger view. Then there's Psalm 88. I don't know what was going on in the author's mind, but the author basically says, hey, look, I'm overwhelmed here. I feel like the, I'm just dying. I'm in a pit. Everything has gone south for me. I'm suffering. And then he looks at God and says, Hey, God, why are you doing this to me? And if you're not doing it to me, where the heck are you? Why have you left me here all alone? Folks, that's in the Bible. You see, the goal of our faith is not arriving at some point where we have rock-solid beliefs and we have no doubts. You know what the goal of our faith is? To be like Jesus. To be like him. Christianity is not about believing the right things. It's about faith is not belief. It's trust. It's trusting in him and living for him and asking questions and being your whole, full, awake, alive self in the world. Mother Teresa served her whole life among the poor. After she died, they found all these letters that she had written. And she went through periods of intense doubt and anxiety. 
and emptiness. We are all a mess of faith and doubt, and it's not an ugly thing, but it's a beautiful thing. And our doubts do not, our doubts do not indicate a lack of faith in our questions, but actually the opposite, faith. Because if you can ask your questions, you believe that God is good enough to handle all of it. And I think there's a lot of young people in the world who don't want anything to do with the church today because the church just wants to give them answers without even asking finding out what their questions are. And I'm fully convinced that God is big enough and beautiful enough and great enough and special enough and awesome enough that if people ask their questions, ultimately they look around the world and see the world and see the beauty of what God is doing in the world, that they will come to the same conclusion as Thomas. My Lord and my God. So let me say this. You know, in the early service, as I was delivering the sermon a helicopter passed over, and I thought they were coming to pick me up. <laughs> Somebody in the pulpit committee from when they hired me called and said, send the helicopter, let's get David out of here. <laughs> but if you have any reservations about what I'm saying this morning, let me point to you just a one moment in the life of Jesus. The very last thing he said, before he was raised from the dead. Remember what he said? Why? 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 I don't know your story this morning. Don't know where you've come from. I don't know what questions you are. But let me just tell you. Jesus didn't turn people away because of their questions. And neither do we. Amen.